0: Um, Changes in habitat. As soon as you put something down on the seafloor or put it anywhere, you've changed something. How much have you changed? How far-reaching are those changes? And are you taking the home away from something terribly important? Science. Technology. Scientific discovery. This is
1: SciVibe. Hi, I'm Brendan Bain. I'm a science writer at Pacific Northwest National Laboratory in for Nick Hennon today. You know, we share the world with a lot of wonderful, interesting creatures, both big and small. And as we explore and deploy new technologies that generate power, specifically devices that generate energy from the movement of water, scientists are working to understand how wildlife coexists with this technology. Are marine renewable energy devices safe around sharks and whales? What scientific secrets lurk in the Arctic's frigid waters? And how can marine renewable energy help us uncover them? Today, we're joined by a scientist who has a lot to share on these questions, oceanographer and senior research scientist at PNNL, Andrea Kopping. Dr. Kopping, thanks for coming on the podcast today.
0: Really pleased to be here today, Brendan.
1: I know you just presented at AGU's fall meeting last month, and uh, I think you're getting ready for their upcoming ocean sciences meeting. Uh, I know you're going to share the latest findings from your work there. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, what projects you're working on now?
0: So we are working on marine energy, that's wave and tidal energy, trying to really bring this in as the latest part of the alternative or renewable energy portfolio for the U.S. and around the world. And part of that, of course, is doing good engineering, But it's also making sure that we deploy these devices in the ocean to generate electricity in a responsible manner. That we think about the the marine animals, the habitats, the oceanographic and ecosystem processes that might be disrupted. And that's where my group over the last 10, 12 years has really focused. I'm fortunate enough to lead an international collaboration of 16 countries interested in environmental effects of marine energy trying to get out ahead and answer the questions that stakeholders and regulators might have. For example, will marine mammals or fish run into rotating tidal turbine blades? Will the electricity generated and sent through power cables cause disruption to those animals that recognize electromagnetic fields? Will the sound underwater bother them? So we've been working in this field for some time. And part of what we're trying to do is really provide data, information, and frankly, confidence to stakeholders and regulators that these will not be hugely disruptive or destructive to the environment. It's a real push pull. People want clean energy, but they're also worried about these animals and these habitats in the ocean. So that's what we try to do. And we're working on a process we call risk retirement, putting aside those smaller risks that aren't probably very important, they might seem it, but the scientific data tell us they aren't. So we really concentrate on those ones that could be dangerous, where we can focus our research efforts.
1: I have so much I want to ask you about that. The, I mean, the questions you, you, you posed and just the, the field itself seems inherently so interdisciplinary. Like You've got you know, biology, you've got energy, you've got all of these different fields working together to mm-hmm. explore those questions. I wonder, maybe it would be helpful, could you tell me what sort of devices are we talking about? Like, what's the, what's, what are the range of, of different devices that we're looking at here?
0: Absolutely. So in the ocean, there's lots going on. All you have to do is stand there and watch it. Um, we are looking at tidal devices, and they look like turbines, a lot like what we think of in, like, uh, hydropower dams, but much smaller, much slower, but the idea of rotating blades as the, as the current goes by. And they could be a big device floating with with uh, blades below it and then anchored to the seabed. Or many of them are very heavy devices that sit on the seabed and sort of poke up with various kinds of configurations. Some look like little wind turbines underwater. Others look more like fan blades. So there's a range there. And there's others, there's even a tidal kite that is tethered to the seabed and then sort of uh, floats around generating power in kind of an, a big figure eight as the, as the water goes by it. So those are the tidal ones and those are the ones we're worried about animals running into blades because we just, there's nothing like this anywhere we can look to for information. If we think about, uh, generating power from waves, again, stand on the beach sometime and watch the waves come in. They, they aren't all the same size. They're not all coming from the same direction. They change from minute to minute. So what we're trying to do is use devices that take that energy as sort of the wave comes up and comes back down and turn that into electricity. Some of them look like buoys floating on the surface anchored to the bottom. There are a few that sit on the bottom, and as the wave goes by, they sort of move bags of air along. There are a whole variety of devices, especially wave devices, which are really a tough technology to work. Beyond that, there's a whole range of other ways we can generate power from the ocean. That includes, there are persistent ocean currents, the Gulf Stream, for example. And there's others, only a few, but there's others around the world that they move slowly, but they move all the time. And we can use big turbines there. And the final kind of exciting one is gradients in the ocean. And if you go to the tropics, there's that warm water on top and very cold water down below. It's like a heat exchanger. You can generate power from the difference in those temperatures. Same with salinity, fresh water to very saline water. So it's a big, big range. It covers a lot of things. And you're absolutely right. Interdisciplinary is really important. As an oceanographer, as a scientist, I need to work with the engineers. So they tell me what their devices look like. I can understand where there might be danger to animals. Provide feedback. Maybe if you change this, or is it necessary to do that? Similarly, as an oceanographer, I study systems. I study whether taking energy out will change how the water flows or the height of the waves. How will this affect the animals? How will effects on certain animals being scared away, perhaps, affect they pray, they eat, and so on. So yeah, it's it's a really fun field for an oceanographer because you have to look at it all of it.
1: Wow, that's super fascinating. I've never heard of the, the kite one before. So is it is it shaped like an actual kite?
0: It looks like more like a big surfboard, and the the turbine itself is underneath it. But it's tethered. Uh, maybe I think the one they've got right now is they've got about four tethered to it. Comes down to a single tether that's on the seafloor. But imagine uh, anchoring this to the seafloor in this long tether and then the thing just as, as a kite might fly in the air. That's the one that's still very puzzling to understand how to figure out the risk and all that. Because where is it at any time?
1: Wow, I want to hop inside of a little underwater vehicle and just go take a look at that thing. It sounds really interesting. So can we talk a little bit about some of the environmental effects that we're talking about here? How do you study those effects and what sort of effects are you looking for, like in the first place?
0: Okay, so there's some that the device is putting out emissions. It's putting out noise because you're generating power. There's a generator. And noise underwater is a concern because marine animals use sound the way we use sight on land or terrestrial animals use sight. So that if you put additional sound in the ocean, you may be disrupting their communication their navigation etc but we recognize the oceans are already kind of a noisy place from other human activities shipping and all kinds of things so understanding what the level of noise coming out of a device is and the frequency and how that would affect the animals nearby we're getting a pretty good handle on that because of some really good research and we think that it's probably not a big deal for a couple of machines we'll keep looking though the electromagnetic fields the power coming through a power cable We examine that through a lot of lab studies because these power cables are not specific to marine energy. We run power cables from the mainland to islands to take power there all the time. So we have opportunities to study these. And again, the effects are going to scale with how much power. And we're not talking about a huge amount of power. So we feel like we're starting to get a handle on those, but there's still questions. Changes in habitat. As soon as you put something down on the seafloor or put it anywhere, you've changed something. How much have you changed? How far reaching are those changes? And are you taking the home away from something terribly important? And we think a lot of the solutions there, you need to look at that, but you need to survey the seafloor. And if there's one critically biodiverse reef, don't put your device on top of it. So cite it carefully. So these are the sort of things we do. We take the research and try to turn it into practical advice. The one that is the most difficult that I've alluded to is this collision risk because it's not like fish coming through a hydro turbine where through a dam, there's nowhere else for them to go but through that turbine and it's turning really fast. The tidal turbines turn slower, only as fast as the water flows and there's lots of sea room around it. So it doesn't work there. It's not like a ship propeller either. We have to be able to observe this underwater and that's difficult. They're difficult, fast-moving places to put gear down. As an oceanographer, I don't want to put my gear there if I could avoid it. And often the water is quite murky. So this is the one we don't have a lot of information. Plus, we're trying to prove the negative. Something will not run into it. So that one is the one that's still very, very difficult. And groups all over the world are working with different instrumentation underwater, trying to get a few glimpses into this. So this is a, the the way we do it. One of the things we do is we try very hard to borrow from other sciences in other fields. Has offshore wind done, done this? Has oil and gas platforms looked at it? How does this look in terms of like building a ferry terminal over the water? Are there analogs we can bring in?
1: In the case of the power cables, is it is the the idea that the you know, the power generated or the moving through the cables may disturb like the electromagnetic perception of sharks and rays. Is, is that the, the possibility there? And-
0: yes. Only yeah. certain marine animals can detect electromagnetic signals. Char- certain sharks can. If you ever go look at a shark in an aquarium, they have those little black dots up by their snout. That is their actually their mechanism for detecting electromagnetism. Certain sh- sharks and r- rays and skates, not all of them, certain benthic animals like crabs and lobster, And the worry is that this will cause them either to be attracted, go and just stare at the cable and not eat, or avoid crossing the cable to the important habitat they need to get to. And what's important there is the type of cable, how exactly it's put together, and how much power is being run through there. And we don't have a good lookup table to say, this much power, this kind of cable gives us this much EMF. This is the kind of work we need to do to make it very clear. But most animals, there's suggestions that sea turtles and salmon might use magnetism in this way, but we have no proof. So there's just a lot we don't know about how these animals act normally. We're at a bit of a loss.
1: I used to live in Santa Cruz, California, and we'd have uh, mountain lions, pumas up in the up yeah. in the mountains. and I know there was a lot of research that demonstrated that uh, you know the closer they are to human dwellings the more that they are you know breeding patterns or rituals will be possibly disturbed that's one animal that's sensitive to that kind of disturbance but I know I've been following your research a little bit and I know um, you had a, a paper I think it was in the past few years that I think demonstrated that the effect or the you know the environmental effect imposed upon these animals may not be as as great as, as, uh, as people previously thought, uh, not, as, not as bad as they thought. Is that the case? Do I have that right? Or-
0: I believe so. Um, through this international group that I lead, we've put out every four years a state of the science. We just put one out in September of 2020, big 300-page report, all, everything we know about all of this. And I think it's fair to say for small numbers of tidal devices or wave devices, the effects are probably very, very small to negligible. And that's where we are in the world with deployments right now. The biggest commercial deployment right now is four tidal turbines. But we also try to say, what happens if we suddenly go to 10 or 20 or 50 or 100? And we use numerical models to get at that. Um, And generally speaking, for what we can model, things like changes in water uh, movement and sediment, we still think that the practical level of development probably 10 turbines at a time, is not going to cause major concerns. But some of these things we have to look at. And we are actually just exploring that. How do you scale up to arrays, large arrays? Is the electromagnetic field, is it all additive? If you add a whole lot more acoustic, is it a multiplicative sort of enlargement or additive? These are the things we don't know yet. But we feel pretty confident for small numbers of devices it will be very hard to tell that there are any effects.
1: That's really fascinating. That's good stuff. You know, we've been focusing a lot on marine environments, but of course, there's the whole application of this stuff in river ecosystems and like freshwater ecosystems. And I imagine that changes it a lot. I think you've touched on that a little bit already. Could you tell me how it it does change, how it's different when you're talking about deploying these devices and say something like a river?
0: So um, in terms of marine renewable energy, we include rivers, no marine, but what is a river but really like a tidal current just running in one direction? So we can use very similar devices. Maybe they're a little smaller. If you're in a river, you do have to worry about things like uh, ice and seasonal debris and so on, which might be a little different how you put it together. Other, and the animals are going to be different. And again, because the river is only running one way, we have a lot of video of salmon in this river up in Alaska, in the iggy River. And they're obviously all going downstream at one point, and the adults are coming upstream another. So the animals definitely differ. You're not going to look at salinity gradients or depth gradients or anything like that. But otherwise, most of these things, the electromagnetic fields, the acoustic output, it's not any different. It really isn't. Electromagnetic fields act a little differently because you can still get an electrical field in freshwater, whereas it shorts out in marine water. But really we do encompass all this together and think about it very similarly with a few little differences. But it's gotta be big rivers. And this is very much putting devices in a river, not damming a river. You can go and buy a little tiny turbine. You can throw in a little river and charge your cell phone. So the principles are all the same.
1: I'm remembering when I was reading some of your stuff, I thought I remembered one of the areas of questioning here is whether animals could perhaps be bruised by uh, spinning turbines. Is how do, you, how do you go about studying that sort of thing? How do, you, how do you know? How do you explore that?
0: This is the collision risk is the really tough one. And that's the one we don't have much handle on. The work we did grew out of the fact that there was great fear if, let's say, a marine mammal, and the case they start, first started thinking of was the southern resident killer whales, highly endangered in Puget Sound. And the presumption was if one ran into a turbine, was hit by a turbine blade, it would be killed. But we said, well, is that really true? So let's take a look. And we were able to obtain some um, tissue from a dead a whale that had died for other reasons. And we spent time working out what the forces of the blade would be. What would it look like if you put that kind of pressure on the animal? And we also were able to get a CT scan, actually of the same species head, to try to understand where the blubber was, what kind of a hit might cause what kind of a, an outcome. And what we found was that unless specific things happened, These were probably not going to be uh, lethal hits. The animal might be cut, it might be bruised. Now, we don't know what happens to it afterwards. Does it run off, die of an infection? We don't know. I spent a lot of time talking to marine veterinarians, doing a lot of research about concussions of these animals. What if they're hit on the head as opposed to on the tail or something? So we tried to look at what sublethal effects would be, And that subsequently grew into a bigger project, and one of my uh, staff went off and did a PhD on this, looking at a number of different kinds of animals, seals and porpoises and so on. We would wait, sadly enough, until we'd get a call that a harbor seal had died up in the San Juan Islands, had washed ashore. We would have a veterinarian go out and say, did it die of something, un, you know, was it in good shape? Did it not starve to death? And then I would dispatch someone up there to go and get that tissue fresh and do those tests up there in Friday Harbor so that we knew that the frozen tissue wasn't a problem. So that's what we had been working on there. And I can't say any of that's definitive, but I think it really helped open up the idea that a collision isn't necessarily fatal.
1: That's so interesting. Do you need a, like, how much tissue do you need? Are you, are you like, taking, like, a, a big slab of whale to, 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 like, explore the effects on the tissue? or
0: Often it's whatever you can get, but the size of a good steak. And, <laughs> and of course, what's interesting is if you think of whale uh, and the, what the layers look like, and then uh, a seal, you got all that fur on it, there was a lot of differences we began to realize, and we are not marine mammal physiologists, but just looking at it, one of the faculty members whose lab we worked in up in Friday Harbor referred to the blubber in Orca as looking like brie with hair in it. It had a lot of, it had a lot of fibers through it, which probably made it much stronger uh, for the way that those animals are very fast swimming and they're very maneuverable. So understanding, I think this really come, brings down to understanding what the individual animals are like and what is likely to happen. We actually have just submitted a paper trying to look at things a little more from the animal's point of view. And what do you need to think about for different types of animals, not just is it EMF, is it a blade, but what is the animal seeing?
1: I think I'm going to be carrying the mental image of Brie with hair in it with me the rest of the day, and I think I'm ready for a cheese plate.
0: That's what I said to this guy, Adam. I said I could have really lived without hearing that, but I wanted to share that with you. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Right. <laughs> it's great. That's awesome. Is it is it too soon to say what perhaps like the human equivalent could be there? Is like is it the same as running your shin into the couch as far as impact goes? Can we can we say like draw a comparison? It
0: could, it like could be. Contrast? It could also be a fairly major cut. So we don't know. I mean, not an axe, probably, but a good knife cut.
1: That's really fascinating. I know you're presenting on another topic as well at a a separate session. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Absolutely. Again, marine energy. It's what we call powering the blue economy. This is a U.S. Department of Energy initiative. We have been thinking about tidal and wave energy for powering the electric grid, the national grid. But right now, the technology isn't really ready and the cost of energy is just too high. So we've investigated, um, our our lab and another lab have investigated what we might do with this power where, uh, as I like to think of it, electrons are more valuable. We're looking at places at at sea where there aren't other good power sources that we could provide from wave or tidal, or remote communities. So many of the uh, coastal Alaskan communities and island communities have diesel power flown in to make electricity. Can we replace that with renewable ocean power? So we have been investigating these and what happens from an engineering point of view when you go thinking about a big machine down to a little one. We've uh, talked to a lot of end users, including about 50 different experts in the field of ocean observations. These are weather buoys at sea. They are platforms that are looking at changes in the water. They are tsunami early warning buoys and a whole plethora of other things. Autonomous underwater vehicles that go off and collect samples and so on, then come back. Um, and we are looking to provide power for those ocean observations. And the, the talk I'll be giving, the poster I'll be giving, is giving some examples of what we have done so far. We are just at the beginning of this, really still scoping. But for example, we have observations in the Arctic. Uh, people put sensors up on the ice. And again, everything uh, at sea is run by batteries. So they run out, and that's that. Can we get generate a little bit of power at the edge of the ice and, and keep them w- working longer? We have looked at the challenge of taking a small amount of power from a wave device or a tidal device and using the, the standard power systems we, we ordinarily use, and they, they don't fit very well, and so we're trying to understand how that works. We're looking at collecting information for waves, which is a part of what we do with everything from search and rescue at sea to weather forecasting. What if you put a wave buoy there and provided power to that information collection device, but then would you interfere with the actual collection, either electrically, acoustically, or motion-wise? So these are the kinds of things we've been working on. We've also been thinking about there's a lot of deep ocean observation that goes on. We have off the off the Washington coast a cable out to one of the big plates, the Scent-Wandefukel plate, and it's got lots of instruments trying to understand how the seafloor is changing, how, um, how uh, uh, earthquakes happen, and so on. And again, it's all battery unless it's on the cable itself. So how do we get power that we generate at the ocean surface down to the deep? So there's a whole range of those kinds of things we're doing. Large animal tags. Can we put a tag on an animal and have its actual movement generate the power instead of having to have that battery on there? All possibilities that we've examined 10 of them. We're moving forward with three or four, one of them being using the very small thermal gradients, changes in temperature in the ocean, to power vertically operating sensor packages. So lots of things going on like that, and this particular presentation is really about the concept and the early work we've done there.
1: That's so interesting. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you'd want to touch on or any other?
0: So one of the other areas in Powering the Blue Economy, ocean observations, often we're told it is the moorings that fail when you have a buoy out for a very long time. So, we have investigated, we're not sure where it's going yet, what we call mooringless station keeping. That is devices that can keep themselves somewhere without having to have moorings. So, um, when you put a buoy out at sea, you have to attach it to the seafloor somehow. You use mooring lines. So, you design a particular set of lines for the right forces, the right depth, the right sort of configuration. And we know this is what fails most frequently for things like weather buoys that are out for years at a time. It is that mooring, something comes loose. And there's a lot of examples, including these autonomous things like sail drones, which can be sent by computer all over the world collecting data or sit in one place. So the, te- the ocean technology sort of industry is exploding. And we think powering the blue economy, providing marine energy can really help with that uh, enlargement of that industry and moving these two industries forward.
1: All right. Thanks so much, Dr. Copping, for joining us today. This has been really fascinating. Thanks again for taking the time to talk with us today. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to SciVibe. We're dedicated to sharing the excitement of discovery. If you had an aha moment while listening to SciVibe, please share and subscribe.